Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air via social distancing. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week, it's 321 Go with Cosmo Macero. Then Cosmo speaks with Jordan Rich, Boston radio personality veteran. And last up, Two Minutes with Tom. Hello, and welcome to this edition of 321 Go on OA On Air. It's our weekly look into the world of public affairs, culture, business, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero, with Cayenne Isaacson. Hello. Hello, Cayenne, the official voice of OA On Air. Cayenne, it's been quite some time, long enough that um, I cannot accurately put my finger on it, but uh, it's great to be back talking with you here on OA On Air. Always a pleasure, sir. Always indeed. Hey, let's jump right into it, because a couple of pretty interesting topics this week. One, I'd say the biggest media story certainly in Massachusetts and, uh, and perhaps all of New England for at least a day, was the shocking, surprising release of New England Patriots quarterback Cam Newton. Um, all signs had pointed to him being the starter. And um, in, in classic form, head coach Bill Belichick, right up to the last moment, did not give any indication uh, that uh, that Mr. Newton would be released, clearing the way for the rookie sensation Mac Jones from Alabama to take over as starter to start to begin the season, and significantly, the entire media universe of sports and other media watching this, and I'm not going to blame them because pretty much any fan who was paying attention assumed that the Cam Newton was going to be the starter also. Completely taken by surprise, and uh, it it really. In fact, yesterday on our on our seven letter O'Neill and Associates staff morning meeting, I, I I mentioned the breaking news. People did not believe me. People did thought I was thought I was joking. <laughs> it's interesting. I was I had to miss our staff meeting yesterday to do a uh, media prep with someone, and it. At the end of it, he was like, why does my email keep pinging? It's go- been going off with news alerts and picked it up. And he was like, Cam Newton. Was- and it was like a whole thing. I didn't know there was such a hoopla around all of this until I sort of watched it all unfold. But, I mean, I think that's so typical for the Patriots, as you you know mentioned, and Bill Belichick, keep things very close to the vest uh, as much as they can. And even continues to. Uh, we were talking before we went on air about I haven't watched Bill Belichick in a press conference in a while, and I love that nothing has changed. He's like an old and reliable thing that you can just count on to stay exactly what he is. Few words, very direct, monotone, seemingly aggravated with the questions. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of questions about the COVID status and vaccine and if that played into it, really not looking to get kind of caught up in that. Like, if you're Bill Belichick and the Patriots, you're like, this decision was made. We're not talking about it anymore. There's nothing else to say. On to the next thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's part of it. And, we, you know, we can get into a little bit sort of the reasoning behind this. Uh, I want to I, I want to steer back at the end toward this kind of the, the big surprise around it and, and sort of the media reaction. But. Indeed, you know, it's it, no secret that Cam Newton, uh, while not being uh, completely transparent, not that he has any any uh, uh, obligation to do so, it's uh, medical privacy, but it appeared clear that, he, that it, it appeared that he 
was not among those who had chosen yet to get the vac the vaccine and um and I think there's some debate as to whether that plays into that and into, into this decision in some way. I don't know that in terms of a decision, whether it's responsible or not, is part of it. I think it was much more cut and dry in terms of what it's like to be a member of the Patriots and an NFL team. It, it caused complications and put the team, it, it places a team at risk of, uh, of, of some type of disruption and or even league penalty during the season. So that's an added risk. Just so happened that because he had a, uh, uh, you know, misunderstood uh, a, a league protocol, he went and had an out-of-state medical appointment, which required him during a critical time in training camp to to basically sit out of team activities. It's not what you want to do if you're the veteran um, incumbent starting QB and you've got a rookie sensation from Alabama uh, nipping at your heels, and that's what was happening. And Mac Jones took that opportunity uh, to really dominate and, and, and deliver a great performance. It certainly didn't help Cam Newton's case that he had a underwhelming training camp. So I think those went into the, the actual decision. Nonetheless, uh, the assumption was still because Bill Belichick right up into the final moments had said, Cam Newton's our quarterback, you know, Cam Newton's our quarterback. Um, and then, boom, all of a sudden he's not – and he's not just a backup. He's cut from the team. It was, uh, it was a big surprise. Dan Shaughnessy, I think, had the most vivid example of how this took everyone, um, you know, completely by surprise. He had the, a classic Shaughnessy column, let's all stop kidding, or, kidding around that there is uh, a, an actual quarterback controversy here. Cam Newton is going to be the starter. He's what Bill Belichick wants, and that's the bottom line. Literally less than 24 hours before he was cut. And, and I'm not knocking on Shaughnessy. All he was doing was reflecting what just about every fan. I have a text stream with a bunch of friends that we, you know, same thing. Can't believe this. Why don't they give Mac Jones a chance? How come they're starting Cam? Probably 100 or more thousand other text streams just like that. And then, boom, there it is. It happens just like that. The guy's cut. So it was a big story. Look, they they keep a, a tight a tight lid on things over there at, at Patriots Nation. It's uh it's admirable. I'm sure frustrating for for the reporters who have to cover it. Um, their messaging is usually pretty solid. Like they they are on their message until it has has changed. Um, and Bill Belichick has no problem like towing whatever that message is until the decision is made. This is what it is. And he's going to keep having that conversation. Um, and, you know, once again, it just sort of proves that you never know. Number one, two, uh, we are in New England just a little crazy when it comes <laughs> to our Patriots <laughs> coverage sometimes. Um, people feel like very invested in this. And I think it's hard to feel so invested in an organization and in a team to then feel like you've almost been duped. Um, but they do it time and time again, and we all just keep getting back up and letting them hit us, hit us down. So, you know, this won't be the last time. Yeah. Worth saying to also that Cam Newton exits with a, a pretty tremendous grace in class saying, Hey, you know, tweets out, thanks for all the love of the last season and don't feel sorry for me. I'm all good. You know, I got to imagine he lands somewhere in the league in some capacity, if he wants to, he may not want to, if he's not going to be a starter, but uh, you know, you know, it was, it was uh, the kind of ending that happens to NFL careers in different, uh, different on different teams. 
but uh, you know, he, he showed class in a very difficult period. Yeah. Love that. We need more athletes to do that. I think it's exactly. the right tone. Um, I'm excited. Look, I'm excited. I'm excited. You know, it's been a long time, more than 20 years since the Patriots were, were you know, starting. And, and unless they're bringing in someone, they could still sign someone else. But right now it appears that, uh, you know, uh, the, the rookie first-round draft pick is going to be it, so that's going to be a lot of fun. All right. Kyan, let's shift gears a little bit. Um, a lot of ballot questions uh, here in Massachusetts are up for consideration. The Attorney General of Massachusetts today, Maura Healy, certifying those that have met the uh, threshold for legality. They still have a big hurdle in terms of obtaining signatures, one in particular of note, of interest, um, uh, is uh, an effort to bring back happy hour in Massachusetts. It's been many, many years. Um, a ambitious young man named Nicholas Silvera is uh, uh, is is behind apparently uh, or not apparently is one of the figures behind this. He has a has sort of a has a a, a small op ed uh, kind of uh, pro and con uh, yes and no in uh, in the Boston Globe today about it. But bottom line, the effort is to bring back happy hour. It was outlawed in Massachusetts in the early or mid nineteen eighties uh, at a time of peak crisis in. Um, in uh, uh, driving under the influence incidents, uh, not just arrests, but fatalities and injuries. And, um, uh, and that has been the law of the land in Massachusetts ever since then. There's other types of drink promotions. Uh, not, I'm sorry, there's other type of promotions that are uh, designed uh, to, to, to provide that same kind of marketing uh, opportunity for bars and restaurants where you can, you know, you can, you can sell all the food you want for you know one cent wings and ten cent slices of pizza, but you can't discount alcohol for a certain period of the day uh, uh, under the current laws. And, and there's an effort to change that to support uh, the obviously um, uh, badly uh, damaged uh, hospitality industry. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, as you said, so happy hour was banned in 1984, which. Uh, long time ago. Um, and, you know, for a lot of people and especially 20 somethings and most 30 somethings today, we've never lived at a time where happy hour existed in Massachusetts. Um, I've definitely, you know, done the five cent wing special in lieu of it. But um, I think it's overdue for at least a discussion. Um, he, Nick Silvera, 31 year old Dorchester resident, recently filed a ballot initiative with the attorney general um, to really like move this effort forward. I don't know how many times this has been done. I'm not sure. Um, but it's worth, you know, it's worth a conversation. The Globe does these sort of columns or pieces where they take two sides of an issue. Um, I will say that the no side of it came from a professor at BU School of Public Health who's worked on alcohol policy for a long time. Um, and he addressed sort of the questions I had in my mind, which was, you know, I would think in the age of Uber and Lyft and, you know, that drunk driving wouldn't be as prevalent. Um, he has essentially said that that is not the case, um, you know, at a time where a lot of people aren't taking the tea and trains as often as they used to due to masking and, you know, all the different debates around that. It seems like it could be a bit more of an uphill battle. Um, if the drunk driving 
is the catalyst for why this, or one of the catalysts for why this was banned in the first place. Um, but on the flip side of it, this is an industry that has been incredibly hard hit. Um, they, they're having trouble bringing employees back because they can't pay them. Businesses and restaurants are closing. Um, maybe this gives them a lifeline. So I, I think in, I love the idea of happy hour, uh, but I also can see that the decisions were made based on sound policy. So I don't know. I don't know. Uh, yeah. I often look at things like this, you know, it, it's, uh, it, 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 from the prism of, you know, okay, what do I think as a voter, which is essentially meaningless, right? but still it's, it's, it's what I think. I mean, well, it's I, not I, meaningless. your vote matters. That's right. That's right. Um, I, while it may not, you know, and it's not so much it's an issue. It's not necessarily in my top five or ten of issues that I that I'm passionate about, um, you know. But I I always think it's interesting to think about. Okay, well, how could you make this work, right? How how do you make it work? And I think that if if there was a commitment to doing this because it's a and and the industry could could just demonstrate not could demonstrate more than just saying yeah we need something but show here's how and why this kind of promotion can really make a difference in, in allowing businesses to sustain and survive. That's step number one, you know, to explain how and why this works uh, as a marketing and a, a business, um, you know, uh, a, a tool for revenue. Number two, you know, what's the regulatory f- framework around it? And I think you could make it work. The things that come to mind are, well, number one, you know, you, you can't discount alcohol below the cost. I think you already can't do that. You can't even do that in a liquor store, meaning you can't. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you, you can't have a loss. You can have a lot. You, know, you can sell uh, whatever groceries you want at whatever loss you want. I think you can't do that with alcohol. Right. So if it costs a bar or a restaurant, you know, one dollar and thirty nine cents to make a drink or $2.11 to make a drink, that's their cost. You can't you can't charge below that. That, that seems like a simple thing. Number two, uh, obviously a limit on the num- on the hours per day. Number three, seems natural, available, you know, with purchase, you know, with purchase of what? An entree, two appetizers, a meal. You've you, you, you got to serve food with those drinks. It's not just come on in and load up for two hours. I think you can build some parameters that could make it work. Maybe have a pilot program. We have metrics here. In 1984, the Commonwealth was fed up because 411 people were killed in motor vehicle accidents, 411 motor vehicle fatalities. And the numbers didn't really start dropping uh, until for another 10 years, you know, and, and, and then they started falling below 200 annually, which is, which was great cutting it in half. So, I think there are some parameters that the industry would have would would, would probably need to sign on to. Uh, even better, propose right, e- propose a really good framework for a happy hour uh, law. Maybe you know uh, that's that's what I'm fascinated by is how do you make it work, and we'll we'll see how this campaign shakes out. Yeah, I th- you know like I said, I think it's it makes sense. Uh, it, I don't again, I don't know when it's been brought up before, but. 1984 was a long time ago. So if for nothing else, um, it's a good public debate, a good discussion to have and figure out if there, there's a way for it to work for, for Massachusetts going forward. Indeed. All right, Cayenne. 
Um, good conversation. This is going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting ballot question season. There's other issues on the table. Uh, you mentioned Uber and Lyft. That's a big one uh, in, in terms of uh, uh, regulations around uh, around those services. And then there's a, a voter uh, voter identification and other, other things. But this is going to be a, a, a fascinating one to watch also. Yep. All right, that's going to do it. Thank you, Cayenne. That's going to do it for this week's edition of 321GO. Program is recorded remotely from different locations around the Commonwealth in the USA. Our producer is Catherine O'Brien. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Macero. All right, up next on OA On Air, we're joined by Jordan Rich, veteran radio personality from Boston. Jordan spent many years at WBZ overnight and on weekends, also was a on-air personality for WRKO and WSSHFM uh, between 1978 and 1996 at different times. He's the founder of Chart Productions, and most recently, he's the author of My 50-Year Love Affair with Radio, Jordan Rich, it is a pleasure and an honor to have you here on OA On Air. Well, thank you. I love the name of your show, and I appreciate the invitation. Excellent. Well, thanks for joining us. Jordan, I'm a um, big radio fan of all types. I've, I, I've, over the years, I've been a, a listener of yours for sure and um, followed your career and, uh, and enjoyed it. Let's start with your book, though, uh, because it really goes through your entire radio career as well as... Uh, different chapters of your life, and it's really a, really a fascinating piece of work. Well, thank you. Um, I never thought in a million years I had a book in me. I've interviewed thousands of authors over the years. Maybe the pandemic was what tipped me off to do something in this realm and leave some kind of a lasting legacy for whatever grandchildren I have to, whatever more grandchildren I have. But it, it really is interesting when you go back and examine the career in radio in this one market, Cosmo, because so much has changed in terms of the technology, in terms of trends, in terms of how the business of radio has been structured, that it was a learning experience for me to re reach back into my memory banks to, to discover all this. Yeah, certainly the industry is changing as technology has made the way people engage with audio content uh, uh, in different ways. There's a much more of a uh, sort of on-demand dynamic to it with podcasts and things like that, but it also seems like there's a tremendous amount more opportunity now um, for, you know, the, the, the huge barrier to entry, um, a, you know, having a, a FCC license and a, uh, and a radio tower and all that capital investment, um, you know, you can get right into the business of radio uh, uh, so to speak, uh, just by having some creativity and, uh, and a laptop in a way. Well, you're, you're talking about something that makes my heart warm, and that is um, audio, which has always been my fascination, and it's been a magical medium since it began uh, with Edison and the first recordings. Audio is not only king, but it's now champion once again because of what kind of things we're doing right here, the podcast 
technology. And I love the fact that people are listening to audiobooks, listening to radio shows, listening to podcasts like this one. And the creative realm is just wide open. I mean, you can do things as an audiobook or as a storyteller that it would cost hundreds of millions of dollars on the silver screen to produce and you're doing it with imagination. So I think we're in a golden, a super golden age of radio and audio. I think it all meshes together. And I'll tell you, if, if I were coming up now and as a kid, the first thing I would do and recommend is have a podcast because anybody can access it. And that makes it so special in my mind. Indeed. <clears throat> we're talking to Jordan Rich, author of My 50 Year Love Affair with Radio and a longtime Boston radio personality. Jordan, you know, the, the personal relationship that listeners um, develop over time with, with their favorite radio uh, voices, particularly in talk, and uh, I, I think it's something very special. Uh, it, it's, I think the first thing a lot of folks think of when they think of radio is, is you know, drive time, morning and afternoon and things like that in, in the traditional sense. Just let's step back a little bit. But it's, um, I always found it interesting thinking about when I was a kid and I, my dad was a letter carrier. He'd be up at 4.30 in the morning and, and boom, there goes WMEX and then WBZ on that little clock radio in the bathroom cranking uh, the morning news uh, or, or, or in, in, you know, in the basement tinkering on, on something or working on a project and listening to, uh, you know, WJIB, uh, easy listening music or, or myself, right? Overnight, late night doing some kind of project and listening to yourself or others on BZ overnight. Um, it's a very personal relationship. I don't think there's anything else like it in media. Well, yes. And the overnight experience that I was so honored and blessed to have for 21 years, um, I was following on, on a long line of ma majesty in terms of uh, late night ownership. I mean, you had Larry Glick, Norm Nath, uh, Bob Raleigh, all of these guys on BZ alone, Bob Kennedy in the 60s, and all these but then you look at the national scene and and uh, the Gene Shepherds of the world and uh, John Nebels and all these New Yorkers coming up at you with 50,000 watt clear channel stations. It is a definite relationship. You said the word relationship, Cosmo, and you're absolutely right. And uh, having done radio for over 40 years, I can tell you that maybe not immediately, but soon after I started, I felt this kinship, I did that for many years, or particularly the late night. You can sit in a studio all by yourself on, at the time, Soldiers Field Road in Boston and just feel the connection and the contact. And what really made it great for me, <laughs> and I write about this, is the fact that they gave me creative freedom when I, when I was at BZ in the probably the height of my, my career talent phase. And I just ran with it and I realized two important things. One, people are not always interested in fighting and kicking and screaming and battling and, and disagreements and arguments. They're really interested in learning and exciting, you know, they're excited about new adventures that they can learn about. And the other thing is uh, kind of related, and that is try a different approach. Instead of screaming at people and hanging up on them, try listening and really listening and becoming uh, empathetic and connected. So all of that combined with the fact that I had a four or five hour playground on weekends to in people like you and others on the, onto the show made it a glorious experience. And there is still, to this day, 
I stopped doing it five, six years ago. There's still a strong connection with literally dozens of listeners who keep in touch with me. So it's, it's family. It's a real family feeling. Indeed. Indeed. You, 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 have, you make a great point. You kind of beat me in my segue, which is it, it, it has, and, and not just that time slot or those time slots on BZ, but just that brand of talk has demonstrated over and over that, um, con, you know, interesting dialogue, kindness, uh, you know, sort of politeness and just a, a, a nice exchange over topics can be tremendously compelling radio. It doesn't need to be a shout fest. Um, you know, I remember years ago, I heard David Brudno, he got angry at a caller, I think once. And I was like, wow, I, I've never heard that before. I've never heard, you know, and, and I know that that's that type of back and forth um, has been a feature uh, of, uh, of, of your program and other programming, particularly at night, I think it's a very special kind of uh, uh, time slot. And and uh, and I and my hope is that it's something that continues indefinitely because I think it's a really uh, uh, you're, whether it's night owls or just people that like to sort of drift off uh, to the uh, to the chatter of their favorite personalities. It's really um, it's it's really an important part I think of radio. Well, when people used to say, particularly women, middle aged and up, oh, I go to bed with you every weekend. <laughs> I, always, I always tell my wife, don't worry, I can still un, outrun most of those particular individual ladies. But seriously, I, you make an excellent point. Um, and, and the point is brought home by the experience of the entire world, all of us in the last 18 to 19 months in the pandemic experience, which is untold before this, you know, in our lifetime. And that is conversation. And what we're doing right now, uh, somebody will eavesdrop on our conversation and find connection. They don't have to speak to us directly, but hearing the voice, hearing the human voice, think about a world without that and without music and without connection. So it, it really was and is a very strong medium. And I think what makes it really cool, unlike television, which is great, and I'm a big TV fan, what, what makes it really cool is that element of imagination. People, I could say, and I, this was true, I often would come in at midnight uh, in a in a tuxedo because I had done an event or something the night before in the evening, and I would describe what I was wearing. And there are times when I was wearing just a t-shirt and jeans, but the audience can imagine me, you know, six foot three, with a full beard and flowing blonde locks and a beautiful tux. It's it's the power of the imagination, which has unfortunately been driven out of a lot of things because everything is in front of us, virtual reality, everything's here. But think about all those great stories that you hear, even friends tell you, and you just use your mind to bring them to life, to populate them. That's what radio can do. It doesn't always work, but that's what it can and should do in my opinion. Indeed. The man is Jordan Rich. The book is my 50-year love affair with radio. Jordan, I'm assuming Amazon.com, anywhere else that uh, people can pick up your book. Yeah, it, it's an Amazon book. You can go to my website, jordanrich.com and connect directly there. I will say uh, the only plug that I put in is that I didn't write this to make any money. Uh, first of all, I didn't think it would, it would generate much in the way of sales. It has done very well. But the reason I say that is because um, I make sure that all the donations and all the money that I get goes directly to uh, one of our charities, Boston Children's Hospital. It was the BZ charity for years and I work with them. So a lot of money over there sold about a thousand copies or so give or take 
and all of that money goes directly to children. So Jordan, Amazon. A terrific cause and a world-class hospital, one where I, uh, like many other families and parents, have some experience with personally. So thanks for that, and uh, uh, thanks so much for your for your time, Jordan. It's been a real pleasure having you on OA on air. Cosmo, uh, great to see you again, and great to connect on such a topic that I know you are passionate about as I am. Really appreciate it. Very nice to see you, and congratulations on the podcast. All right. Thank you. Hi, Cayenne. Hi, Tom. How are you? Welcome to Cayenne and Tom. It's two minutes with Cayenne and Tom. It's great to be with you. I'm fine. It's fine. It's been a while. It's a, this is a coast-to-coast conversation. You're out on the West Coast, and I'm here in Boston on the, on the East Coast. It is. It is. Lot, it's not a shirting here. A lot going on. There is. A lot going on. Um, not a ton of happy news this week, but uh, I think, you know, since we've spoken, the probably the, the largest thing is uh, troops being pulled out of Afghanistan, uh, civilians, Americans, um, a lot to sort of unpack there. And, uh, you know, a lot of controversy over what's happened in the last couple of weeks. I think, I think a, a lot has happened. And I think um, some of it is, is correctly placed. I'm talking about the blame. And some of it is not correctly placed. Um, you know, I think President Biden has been very consistent on this war. We can remember having him at our office back in 2008 when he was running for president of the United States and him talking about the fact that the war was already on for too long and they wanted to pull the, the troops out. So he's been consistent for the last 16 years, to my knowledge, about uh, about making sure that Americans, no more Americans, were going to die or perish over there. Um, you know, this is not a peacekeeping force in the same sense that we know North, North uh, Korea and South Korea, where we have a, a presence of the United States military holding the line. You know, there... You know, the, the, it's, it's stabilizing and nobody's getting hurt. Here, we were still losing our men. Although it was quieting down, we were still losing our men. I think the criticism rightly placed is the fact of the way we did it, uh, to be perfectly honest with you. He'd been, he, the president and, and the secretary of state had been warned by our own diplomats that not to rush this, but to do it very piecemeal-like uh, over a period of time so that people wouldn't get hurt. Um, yeah, I really, I, I really do blame the fact that we had a, we had an Afghanistan government over there that was an ally and the Taliban who had been, the government had been pushed aside by the Trump administration so they could ne- directly negotiate with the Taliban, which I think was a cause and the stepping stone that, that brought all this back. He gave them too much, Trump gave them too much energy in that room while negotiating with them and them alone and not the Afghanistan government. I think it was just wrong. And had Uh, declared that U.S. troops would be pulled out. And That's right, and declared (laughs) U.S. troops would be pulled out. But the fact of the matter is, it it could have been done with, with stricter communications. We could have had a greater show of force for our military to pull people out of there. That was just rambunctious and not done well. And I think that, uh, you know, I think the, 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 the moment uh, was seized by the events. And I, I just think it was very poor planning on the part of the State Department and our own military. And I'm a Democrat, uh, and I love Joe Biden. But, um, you know, I, I, I think those things have come together, and I think 
none of these presidents over the last three have, have you know, have had have done it well. To be very honest with you, I do thank Joe Biden for getting our, our our Americans out of there. There's still a handful to be pulled. There's still an awful lot of Afghans who are who are supporting our military that need to be pulled out of there as well. But there are 98 nations joining the United States around the world with, you know, in the hunt to get all of those people out as best they possibly can. So we'll see what happens. You know, I often think that when we talk about issues of national security, particularly having to do with anything uh, in countries where we are at war, where we have um, a lot going on, um, that we all need to remember, and this isn't a defense because, you know, this certainly does seem a little messy how all of this went on, but that there's so much that we don't know. There's so much intel. There's so much that is top secret. There's security issues. There is so much we don't know that goes into the decision-making about why things are done or when they are done, when it involves U.S. military personnel and civilians. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if we knew all of that, if we would all say, yes, all of these decisions make sense or not. But I do it always bothers me a little bit that as civilians who don't know probably like a 10th of the actual intel that's available, that we are very quick to pass judgment on how decisions are made. Right. I think that's right. I I I also think that there were, there were, there were channels of, um, of communications, which are used four or five times a year from our diplomats overseas, um, to the White House and to the State Department. In this case, in the last month, press has been reporting that there were seven of these of these communiques uh, that were issued to the to the to the White House and to the State Department that were not followed. Um, and I, I don't know. As you say, there are an awful lot of things that people don't know, but um, there are a lot of questions that are lingering out there that people, you know, who are in the know, want to know more about. Um, you know, I'm not talking about Republicans, you know, investigating this. I'm, what I'm talking about is just getting to the core of it to find out what in heaven's name went wrong here in the final days. Yeah. We may never know. <laughs> and I suspect we will never know all of the, all of the things that were going on. Anyway, I don't want to be too critical of the administration because I think at the core, they did what they thought was right. And I feel was right. Yeah. And that was getting, evacuating Americans and friendly Afghanistan's uh, Afghanistanis out of there as best we possibly could. Anyway, next Thank week we'll know. talk about we'll talk about COVID and everything else that's lingering out there. And oh, uh, more fun topics. And to all of our Irish American and even Irish podcast listeners, um, the great John Hume, who passed away a year and a month or fourteen or fifteen months ago, his wife Pat. Uh, has passed away today, and um, that is the end of an era where the two of them marched shoulder to shoulder and arm in arm to bring about peace in Ireland. And uh, and I just want people to know how much how much they gave and how much we care about their passing. So prayers to her and her family. And uh, Diane, love you. Thanks for everything you do. Thanks, Tom. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's it for this week's episode of OA on Air via social distancing. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you next week.